Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Everyone bring your umbrellas. It's raining squids. Welcome back to the Watchmen Podcast, where we recap and review each episode of the hit new HBO series. Today we're going to recap episode 6, This Extraordinary Being, directed by Stephen Williams and written by Damon Lindelof and Cord Jefferson. I'm James, and with me always is Ryan. Hello, I'm Ryan. This episode is called This Extraordinary Being. But it's also AKA, oh girl, that's too many pills. So I was a little skeptical when we saw like the next episode thing at the end of episode five. Because I was like, oh, it's going to be a flashback episode. I'm really invested in the current story. And maybe this is going to stop that dead. And then this ended up being my favorite episode. It was so good. I love old timey stuff. I love the Minutemen. And now, uh, Will, who was a character that I didn't like because he was so antagonistic to Angela, now he's like my favorite character. I am looking forward to talking about this episode with you specifically because as an avid reader of the comic book, I'm not. I came into this pretty clean. I just saw the Zack Snyder film, liked it, knew that there was a lot more behind it contextually, but didn't know it. Was excited to come into a show not knowing a whole lot and doing this podcast with a co-host slash person in you, James, who is a Watchmen completionist. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about Hooded Justice slash William because Damon Lindelof created a backstory for this character, a backstory that Alan Moore, when writing the original issues, didn't delve into a whole lot. You could also, by the way, on a separate tangent from this, you can argue that the Watchmen that Alan Moore wrote is a sequel to a story from the 1930s called The Minutemen. And like you said, I was also a little skeptical about what this episode was going to be because we were talking about nostalgia, the pill used to make this episode go, the plot device that enabled the entire episode. And we were talking about it last time. It's a little, it feels a little weird when you're like, oh, okay, so it's Total Recall, it's, it, you take a pill and then the whole episode happens because the pill exists. Good thing that pill exists, right? And I was a little wary that the entire conceit of an episode was based on a pill existing and we were going to flash back and see how it went. But it, it was, it was so good. It was so good, dude. If only this pill actually existed, man, I'd be, I'd be dropping nostalgia all the damn time, dude. It looks cool as hell. Uh, well... The people in this universe apparently were also dropping nostalgia all the damn time, ODing on it, dying. I mean, one of the first things that happens, and obviously we'll get to it, but one of the first things that happens is that Lori Blake is like, Angela, hi, you took a lot of that, you're gonna die now. The episode starts with a cold open, a sequence from an episode of American Hero Story in which... Hooded Justice is being harassed by two members of the FBI, and they're blackmailing him to out him as a homosexual unless he goes to Captain Metropolis's house and destroys evidence of an affair that Captain Metropolis is having with the real-life FBI director J. Edgar Hoover. Who would go on to be president prior to the episode starting. J. J. Edgar Hoover was never president. Oh, why? He was played by Leonardo DiCaprio in a movie, though. Which is even better. Do I want to keep in that I think that J. Edgar Hoover <laughs> is president? President Hoover? That's okay. Huh. I don't think President Hoover is even nearly as, as cool. Well, not, not as cool, but as famous or interesting as J. Edgar Hoover. Is the dam named after him? Nope, that's named after the president. I don't know anything about anything, James, and it <laughs> is... Oh, Were you not a music major? No. Like I said last podcast, I had six majors in college. Okay. None of them were music. Although, 
I was a part of the marching band for four years, so you could argue it's what I was there for. All right, that's but what I was mixed be- up on. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but to what I was getting to at the be- the beginning of this sentence, before I forgot who a president could or could not be, prior to this episode starting, it said that it would have nudity, and I was like, okay, we'll see how that goes. Dong Watch 2019. Hashtag Dong Watch 2019. Yeah, I've got terrible news about Dong Watch, by the way. Uh, we'll get to it. Oh, God. How can I keep going after that tease? I'm going to, though. And it also said there was going to be a strobing effect, and don't watch the show, or you might have a seizure. And I was like, oh, boy. This is a big risk when we, now. When we saw that content warning, I was like, oh, well, certainly Dr. Manhattan will be in this episode then. It's, he's going to strobe like crazy. Dr. Manhattan, not in this episode, didn't strobe at all. Turns out the strobe they were talking about was a strobe. Hooded Justice takes off his mask to reveal that he is a beautiful white boy. And then he beats the two FBI agents to death. And that's how that scene of American Horror Story ends up. I don't think that that probably occurred in real life. Certainly, I think that if Hooded Justice had murdered two FBI agents, probably it would have come up in Angela's memory hole. But then also, I I don't know, presented in the comic books, Captain Metropolis is like a really goody two-shoes, like squeaky clean Boy Scout type of character. And I think... They've kind of changed that in the show a little bit, maybe? Captain Metropolis is a dick. He's a dick person, and we're going to learn that over the course of the episode. Also, there is some documentation on PDpedia. Captain Metropolis's will is on PDpedia. We'll talk a bit more about that later. In this scene from American Hero Story, Cheyenne Jackson plays Hooded Justice. He is in the actual American Horror Story... And he played Danny Baker on 30 Rock. He is white, which is something you have to point out because... It's important to this story. It's important that he is white. We uh, then pour out of the American hero story world that is very dramatic. All the policemen are watching it. And Lori Blake walks through the room and tells them to, quote, turn that shit off, unquote. Angela's locked up in a holding cell and is just kind of zonking out on nostalgia. Lori tries to get her to sign a waiver allowing them to pump her stomach, but she isn't even in a state to answer her at this point. She's hearing drumming and looking around and seeing stuff in black and white. Yeah, she's zonked, dude. Pretty zonked. Lori Blake tells her she's about to go into a coma, which... Not great. If I had to choose whether or not to be in a coma soon, I'd be like... No, thank you. Lori Blake also describes how nostalgia works. They put a chip in your brain, they harvest your memories, and then they put those memories into the pills so you can nostalgia trip for the rest of your life instead of, you know, being present and and, and living the life that you don't even care about. This life sucks. Why do that? Let's play the greatest hits of my past. Let's just do that forever. She finds herself on stage at a police academy graduation in the place of the young version of her grandfather, Will, played by... Jovan Adipo. That's how you say that. Jovan Adepo? Adipo? Yeah, I mean, you say that's how you say that. I mean, I know I was very confident when I just said that name, but obviously I was also very confident when I believed J. Edgar Hoover was president. Let's not take my word for it. I mean, this is a recurring theme that Ryan and I cannot read any name that has ha- got more than four letters in it. And, uh, you know, even my last name is kind of unique. Written down, if I saw it for the first time, I'd probably say it wrong, too. I recall being in high school and someone calling you down to the office, and I believe it was James Yeah, don't dox me, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to dox you. Get doxed, kid. Uh, Giovanna Depo, who played Regina King's son in The Leftovers. So that's a nice little tie-in right there. Yeah, that's cool. And uh, they're not actually in scenes together, I think, in this episode, but they're kind of swapping places throughout this extended flashback. Right. They're playing the same person, and that is William, so can't be in the same scene with the person who's also playing you. As the chief of police is going down the row, giving people their badges and shaking their hands, he totally disses William and doesn't even look at him. But the black lieutenant, Battle, is the one who shakes his hand, gives him his badge, and tells him to beware the Cyclops. By the way, Samuel Battle is a real officer and existed in real life. 
he was the NYPD's first black officer, and he was credited with leading the integration of the police force. So it's pretty cool that they put him in here. That night, he goes to dinner with his lady friend, June, and she's a reporter, and she was there covering the story of a new black cadet for her newspaper, and they're kind of having a sort of a, you know, a tit-for-tat, romantic, will-they-won't-they repertoire, and she seems to be hesitant about his new police career saying, you know, that she worries about his temperament, that he's an angry man. June, played by Danielle Deadweiler, like you said, is worried not for William, like, not worried that William is going to get hurt on the job. She's more worried that someone just gave him a stick and a gun, and she doesn't trust him with either of those. And it would make sense for him to be angry, you know, he watched his family explode. Yeah, he's, he watched his, his mom and dad and entire community be killed by members of the KKK and angry white mobs. And so it left him with a bit of an anger issue, which, uh, you know, if, if, if you walk out of that situation with only an anger issue, I would say you've got pretty strong mental fortitude. By the way, in PS, all of this is in black and white. As we ported back to the past, it's been in black and white. So when a piano player, who we can assume is William's mother, is in color, it becomes even that more interesting. Also, next to him, William, that is, in this restaurant scene, a KKK member is seen shooting someone, obviously also a flashback. We then cut to William on the street on patrol, and he sees the newspapers, and it says, Nazis march west. War crisis tests U.S. foreign policy. Right, so this is the the mid to late 30s at some point, and Hitler's invading parts of Europe, and so far America and England are still just kind of like, hey, that's no good, please don't do that anymore. We would desperately like you to stop, just like William would like the man he sees throw a Molotov cocktail into a deli to stop doing that. Right, well, so the newsstand is a staple of, like, Watchmen's stories. And, uh, you know, they're, they're reading the newspaper, he turns, and there's a Jewish deli there, and this guy very casually, just, you know, looking right at Williams, just like, yeah, no, nah, I'm just gonna throw this, I'm just gonna firebomb this business and walk away, thanks. He doesn't understand consequences, apparently. His name is Fred, played by Glenn Flesher, who is Gorin from Barry, which we'll talk about Barry later when we talk about the ratings of how Watchmen is doing compared to the other shows on HBO. He is also Randall the Clown in The Joker, and he was great in that movie. That movie is overall good. Yeah, I like this guy. I never saw him until Joker. I didn't know until you told me a minute ago that this is the same actor. He's very good at playing a piece of shit. Oh, awesome piece of shit. If you need a piece of shit, you should call this guy Glenn. Glenn kills being a dick. He arrests the guy and takes him down to be booked, and at first, Fred is talking like, you know, he's not concerned and he's going to walk out of this situation. He calls uh, William a racial epitaph, and then another cop sticks up for William, seems to stick up for William, and then takes him away to be booked, but makes this weird sort of okay symbol on his forehead. Like, he, you know, it's like the okay hand signal, but then on your head. The next day... Will is reading Action Comics issue one with Superman in it, with the newsstand guy, when Fred walks by and kind of, what does he, like, slap the comic book or something derisively, and he's like, hey, officer, look who's out of jail uh, after a single night. Have a good one. Bragging to William that he has very quickly gotten out of the clink. And also I think we should point out all of the transitions in this episode are so, so good. When he leaves the police precinct, he goes through a, a pair of double doors and it's just in the middle of the street. So just know that every time we say a transition very quickly, the filmmaker Stephen Williams did a wonderful job every time he had to transition from one place to another. Above Williams' head, he's having a in-world flashback of a plane from the massacre, and 
He, again, like you said, gets like kind of jabbed by Fred who walks by him and is like, oh, look, I'm untouchable and you suck. Will goes down to the station and tries to question the booking officer about it who begs him to drop it for his own safety. Regina King is William for a moment there as he walks back through the double doors and then confronts the guy at the front desk being like, hey, why did this happen? And the guy is like, you should stop talking about it. Or you're going to be dead. Yeah, I got the sense that the booking officer is not part of the conspiracy. And he did seem like legitimately worried for Will's safety. Right. He is probably also worried for his own safety. So he's trying to help Will out despite how afraid he is as well as the other officers around him. Walking home that night, patrol car filled with three white police officers try to coax Will into it very menacingly. Like, hey, why don't we go for a drink? Why don't you come into this car? We're all off duty, but we're all still in our uniforms and in a patrol car. Why don't you come join us? He says, no, thank you. As they drive away, all of this, by the way, still in black and white. As they drive, there are two bodies being dragged behind the car. Obviously, another in-world flashback William is having. The bodies and the blood that the bodies are leaving on the street are all in color. A really disturbing slash cool moment of this show. And as they drive away, you assume, I bet there's something nefarious is about to happen. Feels nefarious ominous. Hashtag nefarious ominous. As Will is walking down an alley, they cut him off in the patrol car, get out, and just mercilessly attack him and beat him into unconsciousness. When he wakes up, they've driven out of the city into a park somewhere, and they string him up as if, and they they put a hood on his head like they're about to lynch him, but at the last minute cut him down and issue him a warning not to interfere with the the white officer's business. This part, it did feel, so... For a origin story of a superhero called Hooded Justice. It makes all the sense in the world for this to happen. For the news to come from an attempted lynching. Although I don't know if you can call it that. Because it seemed as though their plan was to cut him down the entire time. I just... Why spend the time scaring him and not murdering him? You know? Well, I think because he's a police officer... They don't, you know, they feel confident enough that they can assault him and do this horrible thing, but probably like that if they murdered him, they would have, they would trigger an automatic investigation. I think it feels more like a Wednesday night for them. You know, they're like, we got to do something fun tonight. Let's scare this person. We need to be scared because otherwise, why don't we just murder him? It'd be easier if he was real murdered. Walking home in a daze, he still has the noose around the neck, he's still holding the hood in his hands. He sees a young couple being attacked by three muggers, and he puts the hood back on and mercilessly beats the shit out of the three muggers, like really just fucks them up, but saves the couple. A white couple, by the way, which I don't think came into his brain as he was doing it, he was just very angry, like June said earlier in the episode, that he was, is, and justifiably is angry, and he sees an opportunity. I mean, to, it's, this happens to Spider-Man, right? It, where Spider-Man gets his powers, and then he walks by an alleyway and sees people being beat up by general evil, and is like, oh, this is a great opportunity to smash their face in. Getting home, he arrives uh, at June's house still with the noose around his neck and admits like, yeah, I am angry. I am an angry man. And they tearfully embrace. And I think, you know, maybe clearly they've had a strong bond. I think this was the moment maybe like that they fell in romantic love, I guess. It wasn't, it wasn't clear to me at what point in their story they kind of got together or if they had been the entire time. It doesn't seem like at the first date that they were. I am equally as confused as to the relationship timeline, but I will agree around here is I I think they are about to or have decided to spend their lives together in the vigilante game. The next day, the story of a masked or I guess a hooded vigilante saving the couple has made the newspaper. June compares him to the Marshal Bass Reeves. And here we find out basically that this is where Will has taken his name from. You know, he was just a little boy when he lost his parents. He might not remember 
you know what I don't, I don't my my son's a little boy he certainly doesn't know what his last name is what his last name was and he took the name Reeves because of Bass Reeves the Black Marshal and she goes on to say that yeah you you're not really going to be able to trust in the law if you want justice you're going to have to do it under the hood which is a callback to the comic and also her she has the idea to paint his eye line with white makeup so that he will appear to anyone who looks him in the eyes to be a white man. So it makes sense for the American hero story in the future to think that Hooded Justice is white because that's what he was going for. When June holds up the mirror to William, Regina King is in the reflection, which was really, really cool. And he speaks of this movie, Trust in the Law, a movie he watched as a child. And the way it is described is... In 1921, trust in the law to an African-American would have been like their American hero story, you know? A song I absolutely love, I Don't Want to Set the World on Fire by the Ink Spots that's playing. Uh, we get a lot of that album. It's this Ink Spots album with the same guitar and piano background behind different songs. But this is the best one. I Don't Want to Set the World on Fire. Other Fallout 3 players will certainly recognize it. And it's playing behind him as he starts investigating, in the Hooded Justice outfit, the corrupt cops who are part of Cyclops. He sees them entering a hideout, and when he follows after them, they've all put on KKK robes. And he brawls with them, takes a few of them down, sees that they've got some kind of master plan laid out on a table with different cities marked on it. So this scene is the scene we saw in American Hero Story, where... The Hooded Justice comes through the glass and saves the store from the robbers. But what actually happened? So, you know, from the beginning, very, very different. Like you said, William finds a map. On that map are cities like Portsmouth, Boston, New York City, Philadelphia, and many more. He also finds a book called Mesmerism for the Masses by W.C. Florentine. So, mesmerism or... Some, you know, some version of taking over someone else's mind will have to do with this story and perhaps more stories in this miniseries going forward. And on the map is an insignia of an eye and a cross through the eye, which Looking Glass saw in the warehouse last episode that the 7th Cavalry had where they were conducting teleportation experiments. So... can It's connected, James. There are connections here. One of the clansmen struggles to his feet and tackles Will through a door, and they end up on the other side of it inside of a uh, general store where Fred is behind the counter, grabs a shotgun and fires at him, so Will has to jump out of the window to safety, and that's when time freezes. Will has become Angela again, and now Lori is, like, walking up into, like, the frozen black-and-white timeline. So in American Hero Story, he jumps through the glass and saves them. And in reality, he jumps out of the glass to not be shot with a shotgun by Fred. When he jumps out, time stands still, and the Matrix effects occurs where it goes around 180, and he turns from William to Angela... Angelo is pulled back into the present as Lori and Cal, who is there trying to help Lori out, is trying to pull her back out. And Lori gets Cal to read a document that says, you know, Angela's name, the names of her adopted children, where she was born, where they met, to try to pull her out of this. And as he's reading it, he becomes... Like the color washes back into his face and then gone again to black and white over and over, representing her almost coming out of it, but not quite, because, you know, she took way too many pills. At home, Will and June are having dinner when a dapper, like, young man shows up and says that he's a representative of a new costumed adventurer, Captain Metropolis, and that he wants to... He, he thinks that uh, that Will is not Hooded Justice, but is a police officer with a connection to Hooded Justice, and he wants to have him invite Hooded Justice to join the New Minutemen, the crime-fighting team which looks to protect New York City. 
the man we will find out very quickly is actually Nelson Gardner, a.k.a. Captain Metropolis, played by Jake McDormand, the star of the Limitless series, asks June to leave the room so that they can talk business, Nelson and William, that is. June's like, oh, great business. I'm going to sit right here. And as he starts talking slash definitely checking out William, June's like, oh, so you're you're him, huh? You're you're him. Just say it. Just say you're him. Again, I think they've retconned Captain Metropolis a little bit because in the comic books, he's kind of like a dopey guy. I don't see him as being this sort of suave, enterprising character. He did seem like he actually was concerned with being a hero and upholding justice or whatever, but he also seemed a little bit maybe like incompetent and dopey. Not quite like he's being presented in the show, but maybe that's just my personal interpretation. Who knows? Yeah, in the show, he is set out to be the leader, the one pulling everyone together, but also subsequently a jackass. Hard cut. Well, well, we should say, Will seems really interested, but June is against it. And it's kind of left inconclusively until hard cut to Will and Captain Metropolis having a sex scene at Captain Metropolis's house. So American Hero Story got this one right. This was a fact that is a fact. Also recall that Regina King's Angela is living this. So she ports from this moment where Hooded Justice is brought into the new Minutemen. And then she ports into being her grandfather, having intercourse with Captain Metropolis. What must that have been like? Right, having... Having opposite gender sex. Yeah, that, that would be interesting. <laughs> right. Learning not only that William is either bisexual or gay, and also was cheating on his wife. So in the book, we read excerpts from Hollis Mason, who was another NYPD officer who was a superhero night owl, who I kept expecting to show up. Initially, when one of the, the Klansman cops stood up for Will, I was like, oh, maybe that's Night Owl. But no, he's a Klansman. And then when it's like, oh, we're going to meet the new Minutemen, I'm like, well, surely he'll run into the Night Owl and be like, oh, I know you from down to the precinct. No, that didn't happen either. But yeah, Hollis Mason intimates in his book that maybe Hooded Justice was gay or something. And then also the comedian in a conflict with Hooded Justice accuses him of being gay in a derogatory way, which maybe the comedian would know because actually the comedian was a CIA asset, so he might have had information on all the other members. Was this before or after Hooded Justice saves Silk Spectre from being immediately, by the immediately comedian? after, yeah. Okay, well, con- context, you know? I guess this is an okay time to bring this up. So, as a comic book fan especially as a Watchmen fan, James. Hooded Justice didn't have a deep backstory. He was he was there. Things happened due to him because of him. But Alan Moore really didn't dive deep into Hooded Justice. One of the recurring themes of, like, Alan Moore story writing is restraint. He just gives you, like, a little peek into these interesting aspects of the story just teases you a little bit, but never goes into full depth of it. That's like one of his call signs, right? So in Watchmen, he introduces all of these interesting secondary characters, and you want to know more about them, but you only get little teases and peeks into what they're really about. And that was the deal with Hooded Justice as well. Uh, He's the first superhero. He enters the scene. He inspires a lot of other people and then mysteriously vanishes. If they don't give us more lube, man... Like, if they just gave Lubeman and then they Alan Moore us and they don't give more about him, then I will burn the world down. But as I was saying, how do you feel that a character that Alan Moore really didn't dive into, Damon Lindelof created an entire backstory for? Would it have been different if the backstory was bad? Yeah, I mean, certainly if he butchered it, probably people would have a problem with it. But because this is a really awesome, really great written backstory that incorporates the kind of imagery that was that Hooded Justice was evoking with the hood and the noose, right? I think it's extremely clever. Maybe Alan Moore in his mind is like, this isn't close to the headcanon I had. I hate this. But, I mean, he didn't provide us with anything, so I think it's fertile ground to uh, 
I mean, for Lindelof to mine. I mean, in Alan Moore's mind, he knows none of this. He's definitely not watching, and he's off somewhere casting spells, assumably. But, you know, after this scene where, you know, Nelson is naked, that's the nudity that HBO told us about. No dong, though. After this, we cut to William laying next to June, you know, the person we just saw him cheating on, and she slash he explains that she was the baby that he picked up when he was a baby. Babies picking up babies and then marrying that baby. Right, and that's very sad. I mean, it was it was it was still sad in episode one, and it's sad again to see here. He picks up the baby and says, "It's okay, you're okay," which always pulls at my heartstrings because I have a little baby, and now baby stuff always makes me feel emotional. But uh, yeah, so it's not clear. Maybe he's gay. Maybe he's bi. If he's bi, then he's just kind of being cruel and cheating on his wife. But it might just be that, like many gay men in the early 20th century, he's just got to fake it and have a wife anyway and just live a lie and a double life, perhaps. I think either way, he's being cruel and cheating on his wife. You know, it doesn't matter what his sexual orientation is. This is probably something that is ill-advised if you're in a relationship. So, James, weird transition, but you did tease at the beginning of this podcast, and perhaps you can put me off until the end on this, because we just went from baby sexual orientation, very heavy, you know, race, we're talking about race a lot, but you did tease, hashtag dongwatch2019 was was in jeopardy? Is is this true? Well, there is something that will recontextualize the one the one dong watch count that we've had, but I, I think we should we should put it off. Oh my god! I know I know everyone's dying to to, to find out uh, this. I am important revelation. I am. I'm sitting here. We're doing this recap and review podcast, and all I can think is, oh man, can't wait till James tells me about the dong thing. At a press conference, uh, Hooded Justice tries to explain about the conspiracy he's investigating. He uses the same words that he uses with Angelou's, a vast and insidious conspiracy. But Captain Metropolis, like, quickly sidelines him. He's, like, just wanting to basically be like, hey, look, we got the first superhero. Now he's part of our team. By the way, I'm not going to tell anyone that he's black because it might hurt my PR. And we'll just kind of get shunted to the side to stand amongst the other superheroes as Captain Metropolis unveils Dollar Bill, who in the Watchmen universe is like the shittiest superhero. He was like a nice guy and like a good hero. His job was just to protect this one company of banks in New York City, and he was like a promotional superhero. And while he did fight crime, uh, he was mostly just like product placement. <laughs> and uh, he, he died really tragically because he had this big stupid cape Right? Like Incredibles, no capes. His cape got stuck in a rotating door, and then he couldn't move, he couldn't run, and he just got gunned down. Oh, I thought the door actually murdered him. Him getting shot is a bit more tragic. That's correct. I just thought a door murdered him, which is hilarious, but getting shot a bunch of times, that's not as funny. As you said, the new Minutemen basically are there to sell something, right? While William is trying to unearth a large conspiracy that he is at the front of and trying to do some actual good, while the new Minutemen are like, please use this bank. And he also, prior to this, has, you know, he has a bunch of newspaper clippings. It says Nazis marched through streets of Long Island. Also, one of them said 22K Nazis hold rally in Madison Square Garden. Which actually happened. Yeah, that's a shameful American secret that people don't talk about. But yeah, there was a big Nazi rally in New York City at once. I think there was actually a recent documentary about that. I shouldn't bring it up because I don't know the name or any of the details. Well, I'm going to leave this in because I left my J. Edgar Hoover thing in. So now that I know I'm, I'm, I'm bringing to light you don't know documentaries. Ha! Gotcha. In the scene with the other Minutemen, we can kind of glimpse that I, I, we see a little bit of we see a little bit of the comedian in one. I enjoyed that, Laurie's father. Um, we also see uh, like a hint of Mothman, Connecticut's finest son. He's from Connecticut. He is. Mothman is an asylum in Maine, but he's from Connecticut. Oh, this is applicable because James and I are from Connecticut. Please don't DDoS James. Right. <laughs> But yeah, that's one of my favorite lines from uh, the movie is that 
Rojak's going through what happened to all the various superheroes, and at the end, he's just like, Mothman's in an asylum in Maine. Oh, I mean, all I know about Maine is it's where all my dogs went when I was a kid. They're up there. They're getting all the sandwiches they want, all the doggy snacks. They're having a great life up there. I didn't know it was only... It's just for asylums and my old dogs. Time passes. June and Will have a child, a young son. It seems to be that Will is becoming disillusioned with the whole superhero game. Uh, Maybe it's around this point that he kind of drops out without a word. But one day, while on his beat, he sees that a riot has broken out at a movie theater. At the movie theater, Secret Life of Walter Mitty is playing, which is when I found out that the Ben Stiller Secret Life of Walter Mitty was a remake. Right? That was Ben Stiller? Right? I didn't see it, but I believe it was. Oh, you know what? This podcast is chock full of things I'm getting wrong. So let's just keep throwing it into the mix, right? It's in Technicolor, which is huge. And as you said, he, William that is, is walking up to the theater. There are cars that are turned over and on fire. As he gets there, he asks the white officer what in the gosh dang has happening right now. And the white officer is like, well, it's what happens when you put a bunch of animals in a cage and you need to go in there and speak their language. And I was like, wow, that was crazy racist. Inside, there's scenes of total carnage and chaos. He interviews a woman survivor who says that she saw some flashing lights and he heard a voice instructing her to hurt people. And so she did. And she had no control over herself. Behind her, William sees a white man walk away with a large film projector and so he leaves the woman who is crying and confused follows the film projector man who is putting it into the back of a truck and then going away and in that moment he realizes that the people that he is trying to find the cyclops order or or whatever you'd like to call it are using the film projectors to get african americans to turn on each other and He immediately knows that this is the way he should be going to figure out what's going on. And he he calls Captain Metropolis and Captain Metropolis is like, perfect. I'll be incredibly helpful. I'll help with whatever you need. He doesn't. He doesn't do that. He's a dick. No, he's and his his reasoning is like, oh, no, this is just, you know, a problem for black people. You should sort it out. It's like, God damn, Captain Metropolis. Yeah, like, (laughs) I am black. That's why I'm talking. Not only the 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 only reason I'm there are multiple reasons why I'm talking about this problem at the moment. One of them is that I'm black. Another one is it's not great. Right. And like we're superheroes. We're supposed to fight bad guys, you know, kind of on principle. And he's like, did you open an account at National Bank? Perhaps that could solve the situation. Also, by the way, he was like, I don't care about your national vast conspiracy. Come on over and bone. Like he straight said that to him. And William was like, no, thank you. Conspiracy. As he angrily slams the phone down, Fred again shows up and just. Why, by the way? Why is he there? He's just yeah, he outside. Could, Why is he there? He's, he's part of the Cyclops, I guess. And he's, he's yeah, showing he's up. he's just hanging around. And just starts spouting some racist shit. The song Smoke Gets In Your Eyes starts playing. Another song I really like. I'm not familiar with the version from this episode. I'm more familiar with the, the Platters version from the, the 50s. But, uh, yeah. He uh, is just done with Fred's bullshit and shoots him in the face. Thank God. Was so psyched when Fred got shot in the face. It's right after Fred's like, here, come into my warehouse. I'll give you some steaks to bring home to the missus. I bet you packing meat, though. You got a big old dick. You want some steak? This is weird. Oh, man. And then he turns around and gets shot in the face. I'm like, oh, God. Thank. Thank the Lord. I was done listening to Fred talk about dicks. Inside, he finds more members of the Ku Klux Klan and they're setting up some part of their master plan and you know he's not he's not kung fu fighting anymore he's just shooting them dead he finds the last member one of the police officers is using the he's recording for the flashing mind control device and he's saying you know attack all black people don't attack white people and he goes to shoot him too but he's out of bullets so he has to strangle him to death i believe that was the police officer who talked to him/ 
was the leader of the group trying to lynch him. Now he is dead. But the mesmerization slash the film projectors, I think, beg a question, which is, what is the chance that the show American Hero Story will eventually try to brainwash America with a mesmer technique? Like Lady True has has bought everyone in Tulsa a big TV. That's a thing that is just news. She brought everyone a big TV, and that is according to the HBO website, the PDpedia, run by definitely Lube Man. And also, there's this other side piece of information where Will Reeves owns the IP rights to Minutemen. It was owned by Captain Metropolis, but in his will, he passes it down to Will Reeves. So Will Reeves perhaps bringing to the equation with Lady True, owning the IP to Minutemen slash the IP to American Hero Story. William Reeves owns that, so maybe Lady True is going to try to brainwash people with Mesmer on the TVs that she bought them. Right. I don't think that the 7th Cavalry, I'm pretty sure Will is the only person with access to this Mesmer technology and anyone he shared it with. I think the... The Cyclops and subsequently the 7th Cavalry no longer has this Mesmer tech. No, they're very specifically working on the portal. And that's a whole separate subject as to what are they trying to use that portal for? What's Senator Keene doing with that their portal? But yeah, Lady True and Williams' plan, which by the way, Damon Lindelof on 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 another podcast said that at the end of episode 6... We're about one day away from the Millennium Clock being turned on, so we're pretty close to figuring out what William and Lady True were doing, but I have a feeling that it has something to do with American Hero Story. So Lori Blake was right. Turn that shit off. In 2019, Will stops Judd on the road and mind controls him with the Mesmer device, gets him to admit that he's got the KKK uniform, Judd defends himself. He's like, no, it's my grandfather's his heritage, not hate. And he's like, well, if you're so proud of your heritage, why are you hiding it? Judd's like, I'm trying to help you people, which is, uh, doesn't sound great. Doesn't sound great. <laughs> nah, not, 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 uh, not awesome. You people never, this is always that like based in fact rooted joke with the term you people where someone will always respond with you people. And in this instance, he's using it truly as a, you know, trying to be a dick. Or like he actually thinks he is helping, quote unquote, you people. But you don't say it, you dick. So using the strobing, flashing Mesmer device, he forces Judd to hang himself. And just then, the image of Angela's elderly grandmother appears saying that she wants to bring her home and that's when Angela wakes up in a bed in a room connected to a medical device with Lady True in the corner we also find out perhaps why William is back in Tulsa a place where he said he was never going to go back to we learned that June took her son their son and went back to Tulsa and told him never to come there but obviously he probably did anyway he goes to Tulsa is 105 years old and does what he did to Judd the uh, you know sheriff that he strung up as you said Regina King's Angela wakes up next to Lady True with a giant orange tube hanging out of her arm. Assumably Lady True is the best person in the world to save anyone from a nostalgia trip because she owned the pharma company or owns the pharma company that makes the pill in the first place, the pill that is now outlawed by Robert Redford's America. So she's definitely helping out, but she also wouldn't do this if, she didn't see it as a leg up in some other part of her life, right? Right. So I'm I'm thinking, I don't necessarily think there is a direct connection between the KKK, the Cyclops in New York, and maybe the 7th Cavalry in Tulsa, other than the kind of nebulous, overarching philosophy of white nationalism. But it seems to me that Will has just sworn a lifetime intifada against the KKK in whatever form they take. Right. It seems like whatever plan William and Lady True have don't have anything to do on the surface with the plan the 7th Cavalry and Senator Keene have. 
Right. It's just, it's a coincidence, like coinciding, like they're all crashing together, basically. Right. And each one of them will make the other one more interesting slash more complicated. But I don't think they're in cahoots. So yeah, this was a great episode. Probably my favorite so far. Uh, real surprise to me. I actually, I didn't think the flashback was going to go the full episode. And then I was really glad that it did. And I was, at the end, I was, I, I wanted more. And I wanted more of the Minutemen. And I wanted more lore. But this is like Alan Moore-esque restraint. And that's what, you know, you, uh, you retire on top. You leave the concert with the audience begging for more. And that's, that's good writing. I think it's my second favorite episode behind last week's Little Fear of Lightning. The one downside to having a full flashback episode is that you don't get Adrian Veidt's storyline, which is by far my favorite one. Obviously, this extraordinary being is... We haven't seen the episodes after this, obviously, but it feels like this is the episode that will win an Emmy if they do win an Emmy. To be fair, The Leftovers didn't win an Emmy, and it deserved every piece of that. Steve Carell didn't win an Emmy for his portrayal of Michael Scott in The Office. Anything can happen, but this seemed like a unintentional Emmy baitish episode, and so it probably should win all the things. But again, probably my second favorite behind Little Fear of Lightning, which was the Timothy Blake Nelson episode that I loved to death as well. Both so, so good. One of them edging out the other because Adrian Veidt is my favorite. Yeah, and no Adrian Veidt in this episode. Right. None at all. And you kind of... I didn't remember that until the very end, which is the hallmark of a good episode of television, especially a good episode of Watchmen, that doesn't have my favorite character in Watchmen the entire time. And then after we see the next on, and Adrian Veidt was there, and I was like, oh, good, Adrian Veidt's back. So this is some... Everyone thought we were going to get the second installment of a Watchmen Dong Watch this year. Did not happen for us. Oh, my God, are you going to... Are you finally going to tell me? I have some more news. Oh my god. So the actor who plays Mr. Phillips is named Tom Meeson. Meeson, Meeson, Meeson. I have no idea. Again, Sure. Sure. (laughs) And uh, this is from an interview that he did with TVLine.com. I'm just going to read a few select questions. Oh god, I'm scared. Okay, tell me what what occurred. You know, I'll just just read the summary. So... Uh, they ask him uh, about his nude scene in episode two, and he says, that is not my penis. <laughs> what? We've <laughs> been duped? I had to tell all my neighbors. I live near old people, and just in case they happen to watch, I just had to let everyone know they can look me in the eye. I definitely assume that none of his neighbors actually watched the show, and he knocked on their door to tell them something about another man's penis, and they were like, that's great, man. Goodbye. Right. It's like, listen, uh, that's not my penis. They're like, uh, what? Uh, okay, good morning to you, too. <laughs> I thought you wanted to borrow some sugar, not tell me about someone else's dick. That's all right, man. Right on. Yeah, so uh, apparently they probably used a body double, which is what HBO likes to do. They just like to either take someone's head out of the shot and show someone else's nude body, or in the case of Cersei in Game of Thrones, they use complicated CGI to put an actress on a nude body. Yeah, they deep-faked it. But uh, this is obviously devastating news. Hashtag DongWatch2019 has been into real turmoil. You can't believe anything anymore. You can't. All the dongs are being deep-faked. This is just the worst. Let's transition from dong deepfake, hashtag dong deepfake, to the, a, another pressing question. Do you think this episode's going to win an Emmy? I, I can't say for sure which episode will win an Emmy, but I, I hope to God that something does. Because, you know, we uh, we got snubbed while Westworld Season 2 did not get any Emmys. You can discuss whether or not they deserved it. No. <laughs> <laughs> but Season 1 for sure did. I mean, they did get more Emmys in but, Season but 1. But you and I tie our, our, our identities to the show. And yeah. so if, if if the show wins an Emmy, it's like, we won an Emmy. You used the royal we, and I was like, we won an Emmy? Oh, cool. Is it here? Is it in my house somewhere? Where's my Emmy? I will tell you, James, that the ratings for Watchmen seems to have leveled off. We've talked about this a few times from episode one down to episode five. It was declining but it seems to have leveled off at around 700 to 750,000 viewers a week 
For reference, the season eight of Game of Thrones had about 11.9 million viewers a week, although that was a little bit out of the ordinary. It's incredibly out of the ordinary for HBO's viewing audience. It is currently ranked, Watchmen, that is 17th in audience in HBO history. Shows that are above it that are currently still on the air are Insecure, Curb Your Enthusiasm, True Detective, Big Little Lies, Westworld, which is third overall all time, Barry, and which is second overall, the first being Game of Thrones. And by the way, the last season of The Leftovers did better. It had around 160,000 viewers a week than Watchmen is currently getting. Which sucks, because Watchmen's so good. So is The Leftovers, by the way. Both of those shows should be watched, but because this is the Watchmen podcast and not the Leftovers podcast, it is sad that most of the internet, every time, especially this last episode, the the feedback was so overwhelmingly positive, and a million people aren't watching the show, which is a bummer. I wish more people were watching this, because it deserves to be watched. We got some tweets coming in. First one from at Canela NYC writes, wow, just wow, that he took his last name and they found a way to weave his story into an existing character and mirror his hero, Erasure and all, is dope. And I agree, I actually did not even catch the Bass Reeves, Will Reeves thing until I read her tweet, so thank you for that. And then also, like, yeah, not only did they did they give Hooded Justice a backstory and they related it not only to to Will, but also relatable to Angela and this whole theme of everything being in black and white kind of pulling it all together and then also like she said history doesn't remember Will they attribute the good things that he did to some nameless white dude or some circus strongman and basically the sacrifices that Will made and everything that he's done to protect the people of New York City not recognized and, and you know, now Lori wants to lock him up and everything. Not appreciated. Another follower of ours, Johnny Vu, tweeted us, should I begin watching The Watchmen? And I said, uh, yeah. So just equally as important, both tweets. One a bit had more a bit more substance, but Johnny Vu had a very specific question of, should I watch it? And the answer is, yeah, for sure. If you're, you watch it, yeah. Longtime listener and Westworld Podcast Twitter MVP, Lauren at very lovely LJ writes, I didn't know you guys were covering Watchmen. Well, now you do. You know it now. She goes on to say, I don't have any theories, just feelings. And I feel like when they, you say things like, I'm trying to help you people, it doesn't really sell your case that well. No, wrong thing to say in that moment, for sure. <laughs> yeah, he could have said a lot of things, but perhaps saying I'm trying to help you people. I'm trying to be your white savior over here. All right. <laughs> Yeah, uh, William's mind was already probably made up that he was going to have Judd hang himself, but he sure wasn't helping his case. Lauren goes on to say, My feelings are really complex. While I kind of like the narrative and background of the character we don't typically see, and I want to reserve judgment until the season ends, there are a few instances that made me feel bad about this type of violence in the form of entertainment. Hmm. Well, I mean, that's interesting. I certainly don't think the violence in Watchmen is is as over the top as the the violence in Westworld, particularly the sexual violence, was a big part of Westworld, and there really hasn't been any sexualized violence in Watchmen. Just, like, hardcore, brutal sort of uh, fighting and combat, I guess. She goes on to say, and I don't know why this show is different than any other violent television show. Maybe it's a testament to how well and immersive the show is. It's haunting. Yes, it's grounded in reality, and a lot of the things that are happening are depictions of either things that actually happened or allusions to things that really happened. And that, that could be extra disturbing. Right. And then she talks about, I think one of the most disturbing moments of the series and this episode, she goes to she says the fact that no one saved will, he was powerless. And the only reason he lived from the hanging was because they cut him down. We saw from a African-Americans perspective, a lynching and it, was awful it was really really haunting like she says we saw it from his pov i mean and like you said he was fading away and then they cut him down no one was there to help him the only reason he lived is because those cops chose for him to live right and then his lover also she goes on to say his lover taking advantage of him i know we're supposed to feel and understand his journey through this episode but i think they did that but where is this headed not once has he caught a break 
Maybe I'm not used to a series framed around a character traumatized by the violence of Jim Crow era, and in order to show his trauma, they have to show what he lived through. I'll be able to give a fair idea of how I feel when the story ends. We're only in the middle, I feel. Yeah, I mean, I agree with her that it is extremely harrowing and disturbing and that Will Reeves has lived an incredibly tragic life. But at the same time, like we've been talking about the last six episodes, it's important, I think, to put this stuff on screen. And it's important to touch the third rail, especially when it's something that's so so ingrained in the American psyche and American history and at the same time something that is so repressed that people never want to talk about and always just kind of want to sweep under the rug it makes it that more important that that it is it is given some kind of mainstream recognition I mean I think a really great example of that is that I've learned two historical facts off the top of my head from this show that the Tulsa massacre actually happened that Nazis were actually in Madison Square Garden like these were our historical facts I did not know and I only know from watching a fictional show about quote unquote superheroes a show that has one actual superhero in it that we haven't even seen yet it's like you have to put these kind of things on screen because I didn't know it and now I do alright folks that's going to wrap us up for today if you're just listening it means a ton if you want to go the extra mile you can follow us on SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at James Watches Men. He's at Westworld Ryan. Um, you can also review us on the Apple Podcast app or on Stitcher or SoundCloud or Google Play. If you really want to go the extra mile, Ryan and I do this as a labor of love, and we eat the fees that it takes to host audio, which is not free. If you'd like to help underwrite the show, you can find us on Patreon. We're still the Westworld Podcast. We gotta come up with a name. So far, the best we got is HBO Boys. We're working on it. Honestly, I think HBO Boys is the way to go at this point. We've said it so many times. Hashtag HBO Boys. In fact, I saw someone use the hashtag HBO Boys, James. Uh, hold on. HBO Boys with a Z because it's cool because we're so I think cool. I think maybe Major Woody was like what kind of HBO boys would you be if you don't watch his dark materials which by the way doing worse in the ratings than Watchmen is but yes I agree we should give his dark materials a shot yes Edwin on November 5th at edweezy1 um the hashtag HBO boys are hilarious thank you for your podcast Edwin hey thanks man that was super yeah. nice of you. But and like you said, he does rule. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Westworld podcast, the name of our old podcast, and it will be our new podcast when Westworld season three comes out. Because right. we uh So we don't even pandering. bother to change it. We're gonna it'll just be relevant again in a few months. Exactly. And those patrons that are current with us are John Jores, Major Woody, Bacaman, Craig, and Lee. Know that I said John Jores first. He is great, although I forgot Major Woody like two weeks ago. So top billing currently Major Woody, but also John Jerry's Bachman, Craig and Lee. Thank you so much for giving us money. You don't have to give us money, but you do. So that's awesome. And I like it. It's pretty sweet. One thing that would really be great, guys, if you want to help us support the show, just spread it by word of mouth. If you've got friends who are watching Watchmen or are interested in TV recaps, pop culture, stuff like that, HBO, let them know. Uh, that's how we've grown our show so far. And if you just, if everybody told two friends and they told two friends, uh, th that's like 20 people. That's 8,000 people. We're both great at math. Also, by the way, the host of one of my other favorite podcasts, you know, besides ours, is uh, from Hello from the Magic Tavern, a great podcast people should listen to. His name is Arnie Niekamp. He's also watching the show. He tweeted last night, Watchmen is a show that just fucking goes for it, and it keeps getting better. Tonight's episode is profoundly good. It was really cool to see one of my other podcast heroes also watches Watchmen and also really enjoys it. Also, on a completely separate note, I apologize to all of the listeners' ears. I hope this podcast slash episode is better on my side. I have been recording this entire season at plus 10 gain. When you only need like plus six. So I'm so sorry for your ears. I have strived to make this listening experience better. But I'm in a very large room that's echoey. And I'm at full gain. I turned it up to 11. This episode's down to six though. So 
Tell us what you think about what our voices sound like. Also, tell us what you want us to watch. One yeah. guy, one guy, you know, understand that he was a patron, so we we do listen to him like he is our god. But he told us to watch a show, and we were like, "Great, we're going to watch that show." So we're very malleable. Tell us what to watch. Yeah, tweet at us. Tell us whose voice you like better, and then join us here next week for Watchmen episode seven and almost religious awe. Directed by David Semmel and written by Stacey Osei Kofer and Claire Keischel. Please, God, I hope those names are right. The only episode so far without a Lindelof writing or directing credit. That's so weird. By the way, James, I want to throw my hat in the ring here for whose voice is better. I think it's yours. No, I like yours better. I'm gonna vote. Oh no, no, man, you don't. You're being you're being a humble Larry right now. Okay, you're you got a great voice. I love it, man. It's so good. I'm James. Wow. Didn't even give me a compliment back. <laughs> and I'm Ryan. And this is the Watchmen Podcast. That's because you fucking doxed me. You better bleep that shit. <laughs> I'm climbing up the side of your building right now. It's not a dox, dude. This is our in real life infiltration. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.